If ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? What's the crack? It is podcast time. I am just in the door from Istanbul, which was fantastic. I am here with John. There's a lot to be catching up on, John. There's a yeah. hell of a lot. I mean, there is, but you know what? I don't have, Mac, is a sticker rock that you promised me. The sticker rock. Sticker rock from Brighton, <laughs> from Bournemouth. He brings back, he from, off he goes swanning around the place. Brings and brings back nothing. back nothing. Nothing. Not even a rock. <laughs> Not even a rock. Now, I tell you what, John, there's a lot going on. You've got our friend, remember we talked about the Chaos Monkey? Yes. He's now pulling well, which out. Which one now? Does <laughs> Elon Musk pulling out of the Twitter deal? Yes. Right? Now, yeah. this, Oliver, first of all, this podcast is going to be a special podcast from Istanbul. We're going to be talking about this amazing city because as you know, over the years, listening to the podcast, you'll know that both of us have a fascination with these huge cities, with what happens in cities, their place in history, all their place in economics, all that stuff. So we're going to talk about Istanbul. We're also, to be topical on inflation, going to talk to an actual person who lives in Turkey all the time. An well, actual person. No, but an actual trader, somebody who does <laughs> yeah. business, right? Um, as opposed to, yeah, a cadaver. Right? Exactly. A boss. Yeah, exactly. But what it's like to live, how can a country like Turkey grow as well as having these extraordinary rates of inflation? Because most economic yeah. theory says if you've got inflation like that, you'll stagnate. But the Turks have been flying along yeah. for years. So we're yeah, going to talk yeah, yeah. about that. So it's fun to get your head around. But yeah, just in the door. And, and I see... Uh, Northern Ireland's kicked off again. Oh, well, I was away for a couple of days. Yeah, you turn your back for two minutes and look what happens, Mac. Tell me about it. Oh, man. Johnson, this is classic this is Johnson. Boris Johnson again. Boris Johnson and going back on the, on the protocol and all sorts of threats and all that kind of stuff. And essentially, it's just saying, if you don't give us our way, it's your fault. It's yeah. not ours. But I have a piece of audio from an amazing interview Gives, from from gives the a, other day. A, what's what's, and, he, what's just, he saying in it? Oh, just listen to this. It's great. You now, can't we, be surprised by do. any of the bits that you don't like at the moment. Pretty much all of them were in the impact assessment papers. I've got them here. I've read them. Did you read them? Uh, of course, but uh, I So hoped, you just ignored them then? No, I hoped and believed that our friends would not uh, necessarily want to uh, apply uh, the... 
protocol in quite the way that they have. That's so, so there's a man. This is an agreement we'll sign, <laughs> yeah. but I am assuming that you will not apply anything in the agreement. Yeah. It's like going into a bank and saying, give us a mortgage. Lovely, great, thanks very much. But what, what you want me to pay you back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. rates of interest. <laughs> but I mean, the, the serious thing here, John, is, and we, I think we should come back to it next week. We'll do it properly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It, it, it deserves is, a good The serious thing delve. is that this is the Brexiteers, again, weaponizing Ireland. Not just Northern Ireland, Ireland, right? And again, we've said it before, do you remember the hard Brexit and the backstop and all this stuff, mm, right? Mm. And their attitude God, then was yeah. to use all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It basically was like a hostage situation. The Brits are the hostage takers. We, the Paddies, are the victims, the hostage, right? Yeah. The protocol is the ransom and the EU are the people that are expected to fess up, yeah. right? And yeah. it's exactly the same. But the problem is that they're weaponizing Brexit in order to make Brexit go on forever. This is the thing, that they need Brexit to go on. The last thing they want is get Brexit done. Because then really? if they take, you see, if they take this fictitious notion that the EU is a permanent enemy of Britain, if they take that out of the equation, they get yeah. Brexit done, they sign everything, then it's over. Yeah. They have no external enemy to blame, to cover up for their internal right. catastrophes. Okay. Okay. So the worst thing about Brexit is the Brexiteers don't want it done. They want it to go on and on. They have this fucking ridiculous nostalgic notion, right? That they are fighting some enemy like Nazism or something, right? Yeah. And they have to emerge heroic and victorious from the whole thing. This is their narrative. Yeah. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to deflect from the fact that the Bank of England governor, you know what he said this week? We will not be able to keep inflation under 10%. We can't do anything about it, right? So at the same time, the British economy, right, is going through this massive inflation research, as we are, right? Yeah. But the Bank of England have just said, I know we've got our own currency. I know we've got our own interest rates. I know we've got long-term interest rates, but there's nothing we can do about it. But that goes against everything that we've been talking about in terms of if you have a central bank that prints... Your own money. Your own money, that you have a lot more control than, say, we do, because we're, we we're, the, we're at the mercy of the ECB. Yeah, we are. At the mercy are, thankfully, in bed with the ECB. I'm well, not too sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, So what I'm saying is that whole Brexit drama, the theatre that we're witnessing now in Northern Ireland. And let's come back to the fact that, okay, we know in Northern Ireland that 56% of the North voted against Brexit. Yeah. So it's a minority in the first place. They had a referendum in effect on Brexit last week. Yeah. And the MLAs, 53 MLAs, are what you would describe as pro-protocol. Only 37 are against it. So the overwhelming majority is, is for the protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only 40% of the unionist vote. The unionist vote is now 40% of the total, right? So it's pandering to a minority of a minority. It seems to make no sense unless you see it as this Brexit forever idea. Yeah. Like that, you know, we're plucky little Britain and we're being put upon, right? Because it's 350,000 about unionists in Northern Ireland are now being allowed to decide the fate of 60 million British people. Because what's going to happen... Yes. If they, if yeah. the, the EU will retaliate, there will be a trade war yeah. between these two sides. So it makes no sense at all, unless you take the bizarre approach, which is that they need an enemy without right. to fight their eternal Brexit battle, because they know that Brexit is still quite popular in the UK. 
Mm. You know, so that's because it doesn't make any other sense in any other way. And you know the amazing thing? We're going to talk about Istanbul, yeah. Boris Johnson. I'm going to tell you something about Boris Johnson. Go on. Do you know his great-grandfather's name was Ali Kemal? Really? He was the advisor. Really? He was the advisor to the last sultan. Okay. Of the Ottoman Empire. Of the Ottoman Empire. No way. I swear to you, his great-granddad <laughs> was a Turkish advisor called Ali Kemal. <laughs> See what I did there? We went from Northern Ireland to Boris Johnson. You're such a pro, Mac. To Turkey. Because I want to talk to you about it. Let's come back to Northern Ireland. Yeah, we, we'll have, back, we definitely we'll have come to come back to the back Brits to. next week. Right? We'll do it. We'll do, do a bit of research and we'll, and we'll come back. But keep that idea in your head, the Brexit forever. That it's an yeah. ongoing process that they need because it masks failures everywhere else. Yeah. And then they can sell this idea through the Daily Mail and the Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph, that, look, we're being put upon by these nasty Europeans. Yeah. Right? When, in fact, the nasty Europeans just want them to go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> they do. Yeah. They do. Now, another great British escapade, and we're going to talk about this, was the uh, the Dardanelles campaign. Right. That, you know, Johnson, not only was his great-grandfather a Turk, but he models himself on Churchill. You know that? He thinks he's kind of a... Yes, oh, yeah, no, of course, yeah. Well, that's bleeding obvious, and actually, if you yeah. look at if you look at Churchill's record, right... There are some extraordinary, extraordinary cock-ups. Yeah. The major one was the Dardanelles, or a major one. Yeah. Which that he was going to try to take over Turkey, right? We'll come back to all that stuff, right? Yeah. But now I want to talk to you about this amazing city that I've just come back from. And we'll do the whole podcast on this extraordinary place, Istanbul. And rather than have me go on about it, do you remember Charles King, the Georgetown professor, who took us through Odessa? Yes. He has written a fantastic other book. He's written many books on history of Istanbul. So let's go talk to Charles about this extraordinary place that I find myself in. I have just come back from. Charles, how are you? Great to see you. Great. Thanks. It's really nice to be with you, David. Charles, let's get straight into it. You have spent a lot of time in this city. You've spent a lot of time studying this city, the history of the city. It's one of the, uh, the most consequential cities, arguably, in the world. And as I said right. at the top, not just for centuries, but for millennia. When, do you, when you're looking at Istanbul, when do you start? For you, when would you say is a pivotal date? Well, that's a, that's a terrific question because it's a kind of eternal city. You know, Not every place in the world can claim to, to have been the epicenter of civilization as we know it, and not just civilization, big capital C, but but civilizations, you know, multiple traditions, multiple religions, multiple empires. So, you know, the city itself, if you're thinking about the foundation of it, goes back to the fourth century AD, at a time when, as you know, every everybody who's studied Western civilization or European history knows the Roman Empire split into, into two, created a second capital on the Bosphorus, on this body of water leading from the Black Sea to the Sea of Marmara, and then from there on through the Dardanelles Straits into the into the Mediterranean, the strategically important place that became one of the dual capitals of the of the Roman Empire. And then fast forward a couple of uh, centuries, and you have the establishment of what we you know, refer to as the Byzantine Empire, centered in this old city of Byzantium, that would last for another millennium, for another thousand years. 
But what we have to remember about the Byzantines, it's not every podcast where somebody says, what we have to remember about the Byzantines. I was about to say, I was about to say, yeah, this is a very, very eclectic, informed uh, audience that before you order your pint and talk about the football results, well, let's get to the Byzantines. It sounded like a guy standing in a pub lecturing, you know. (laughs) And I'll tell you another thing about the bleeding Byzantines, right? Exactly. Exactly. But the thing you got to remember is is that they they would never have used that word to describe themselves. And this is true all the way up to famous date in May of 1453 when the Byzantine Empire falls and Constantinople is taken by the Ottomans. They always called themselves Romans because they thought themselves as uh, even in Greek, Rome, the word Rome, the Romans, because they thought of themselves quite reasonably as the political, financial, cultural successor of the Roman Empire, or even successor is the wrong word. They just thought of themselves as a continuation of that old empire that used to be centered, you know, farther to the west in Rome. And and you know, e- even today, it's interesting for the old Greek speaking population in Istanbul, which is, of course, very old and goes back to the Byzantine Empire. Even today in Turkish, there's a different word to distinguish local Greeks you know, who've been there for millennia from Greeks who live in Greece. The Greeks who live in Greece are called Yunanlar in Turkish. The ones who live in Istanbul are called in Turkish Rumlar. That is- Wow. So they're still Romans. Romans. Still called Romans um, even even today. Fast forward again, the 1453 Byzantine Empire falls. Constantinople is taken by the Ottomans. They're sometimes called Ottoman Turks, but that's a little bit of a misnomer because this was a an eclectic, multicultural, multilingual, even multi-religious to a great degree empire that had surrounded Constantinople over the previous century and a half or so, and finally sounded the death knell in May of that that year and conquered the last holdout of the last bit of the of the Roman Empire. And tell us how you, you've got to start to say the thing now to remember about the Ottomans, right? To <laughs> that. Well let's talk about because I mean around me here is evidence of the caliphate. It's evidence yeah. the blue mosque, the Hagia Sophia, all the mosques, the mullahs are four times or five times a day. You know, it feels like this is still an Ottoman city. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, it's the same. It's the same thing that sort of the, the, that word that we use in in English, Ottoman, would have been much more recognizable to the people who controlled that city, who built that city from the 1450s all the way up to the present, than the word Turk. Okay, so the Turks are a tribe from where? From Central Asia, are they? Sort of the term Turk is is in some ways a kind of it's not a Western invention I- exactly it, it was used but the 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 idea that the Ottomans you know were a tribal group that thundered out of Central Asia on ponies you know conquering as they went in a kind of Game of Thrones way is just you know is just is really not historically accurate right I mean the conquest of Anatolia the hinterland of modern Turkey the conquest of the Balkans which took place by and large before the fall of of Constantinople you know so all of this took centuries and during that period the 
tribal groups that that did come from Central Asia over time, gradually migrated uh, from Central Asia, were absorbed by and in turn absorbed, you know, local Greek-speaking communities or people we would now call um, Armenians and others who were living in Anatolia and gradually became part of this political, economic system, and eventually a religious system as well. So multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual empire, as all empires, of course, have um, to be. They have to be. Have to be. And were united as being subjects of the Sultan. The subjects are uh, with the name Ottoman coming from the founder of the dynasty, Osman, and then in Turkish, Osmanlı, the, the people of Osman, which then gets Ottomanized, Mist- Ottomanized, yeah. pronounced in English, you know, in other uh, European languages. As and, and this, this Charles, I mean, it's funny, you know, this is one of the most sophisticated, artistically, culturally, intellectually. It's absorbing all sorts of characters from all sorts of places. It probably gets a very bad rap in Europe on the basis that it was the anti-Christian force in the Balkans. But just give me a sense of of, of what life was like there. For these people, well, th- that's right. I mean, you know, over over time, the Ottomans kind of become the the original other for yes. Europeans. It's a religiously distinct empire. It's on. We often think of it as on the edge of Europe, but you know, depending on the period no, that you're talking, it's right in the center. Uh, it's the center, <laughs> it's the center of, of the world. You know, and of course, you know, by the time you get to the 17th century with the sort of a height of Ottoman power, you know, coming to the uh, Ottoman armies pushing to the gates of uh, Vienna toward the end of the 17th century, this is the symbol of what power and magnificence looks like. This is what it, you know, the kind of empire that you, that you want to be. It's only later in the 18th and 19th centuries in the period of Ottoman decline that the whole concept of the sick man of Europe. Of Europe, yeah. Comes to, comes to take over. But, you know, one of the great rulers of the 17th century, Suleiman the Magnificent, they didn't call him that <laughs> for nothing. He was, you know... Because he, he, was a, because he was a nutty dresser. That's right. He was sort of one of the great imperial figures and great imperial uh, builders. And by the way, you know, it's sort of... He, he is called the Magnificent in English, but in Turkish, he's known as Suleiman the Lawgiver. So this was okay. a system that, you know, was bound by the concepts of law and justice and order. And that had to be the case in, again, a multi-ethnic and multi-religious empire. Of course, the the elite of the Ottoman Empire, the administrative and, and religious and political elite, were all Muslim. It was a, it was a Muslim empire. But within it, of course, you had Orthodox Christians, other Eastern Christians, you had Jews, you had others who were very much part of the system, built into the system with their own self-governing institutions, something that the Ottomans called the Millet system. So it was very much a mosaic or patchwork of different kinds of laws and traditions based on different religious communities. Now, if we fast forward to this year, 100 years ago, 1922, mm-hmm. and we have the Treaty of Lucerne, mm-hmm. which creates the Republic of Turkey after the Ottoman Empire collapses. We could, we could do ours on the collapse of the empire, but I want to I talk about this character who I'm increasingly fascinated by, Ataturk. Mm. When I first came here, I bought a biography of Ataturk many years ago, 10 years ago, and I was amazed by this guy. I mean... His modernity, his secularism, his 
concept of the future, his vision for the, the Turkish Republic, his essential urge to rip apart the Ottoman legacy and start this new project called Turkey. I mean, he, he was a really yeah. phenomenally interesting visionary leader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, modern Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, as it had been whittled down over the 18th and 19th centuries, yeah. by the end of the First World War, as a losing power in the First World War, the city of Istanbul at that point is, is occupied by some of the Western allies, by the British, the French, the Italians. And, you know, after 1918, the idea in the Allied imagination was that finally, at long last, this strategically important city lying on two continents is now under European control again. And they sort of, you know, told the story since 1453 of... That had been taken over by bandits sort of thing. over by bandits. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, of course, you know, this great, this great imperial city had arisen in that, in that period. And the idea for the Allies was that, well, now we'll control this forever. We'll control shipping into and out of the Black Sea, you know, the wheat exports from Odessa, all of that is going to be now under European control. And slowly, during the period of, of Western occupation, a resistance movement begins to build among former Ottoman senior officers who had been part of the um, Ottoman military. And the person at the center of that is this person, Mustafa Kemal, who eventually takes the name Auditor. And his vision I just is, have to stop you there. For some Irish listeners, you'll know that yeah. Irish regiments fought in one of Churchill's more bonkers notions, which is fighting the Turks on their home patch of the Dardanelles that the Irish divisions were so decimated in the Dardanelles and having been decimated in the Western Front that to actually put together a division of the Dublin Fusiliers, they had to merge the Connacht, Munster and Dublin Fusiliers together because they'd lost so many men, which is extraordinary. So that's just a little aside, you know, for lots of Irish people's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents will have actually fought here, bizarrely. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, this this was the place where it was one empire clashing against another empire, you know, and on the the cliffs of Gallipoli, you know, you have this, this is the thing that's remembered in, in Australia and, 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 and elsewhere. These were two religious multicultural empires fighting against each other. And the idea, though, that is key to Mustafa Kemal's thought in this period is that modern Turkey has to undergo the same transformation that other European empires underwent, which is to say it has to transform itself from an empire into a nation. Interesting. Interesting. It's at this stage that the term Turk comes into use among people we now call Turks themselves. In fact, you know, of course, in Istanbul, you see Ataturk's portrait and-, and It's everywhere. It's everywhere. everywhere. Absolutely every, everywhere, right? He's the founder of the of the modern country. But on, on many of these statues, you'll see a Turkish phrase that goes "Nemutlu Turkum DNA," which means it's a saying of Ataturk's, which means "How happy is the person who can say I am a Turk, Turkum? I am a Turk okay. in Turkey." And what that means is not just "Hey, it's great to be a Turk." Yeah. Um, it's like St. Patrick's Day for Turks. Yes, exactly. I mean, what that means is that there's a certain alchemical transformation that takes place when you say, I am a Turk. I'm not an Ottoman anymore. I'm not multicultural, whatever, and I'm not imperial anymore. I'm a member of a modern nation. 
And, and this modern nation has universal female suffrage before almost any European nation. People don't know this. You have, you, you have abortion is widely available. Think about the culture wars going on in America now, okay? It is, yeah. it is a, is it a profoundly secular country. He changes the alphabet. He said, we're not going to write like Arabs anymore in Arabic script. We're going to write in Roman. I mean, yeah. he invests enormously. I mean, in terms of the literacy rate, I think the, the figures are kind of phenomenal, like something like 9% of the population could read and write at the transfer from the Ottomans. And that suddenly goes up to 70 or 80% in a matter of a decade and a half. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a stunning transformation. I mean, not only conceptually, you know, to, from empire to nation state, but also developmentally. I mean, the, it develops a modern military. It, as you say, transforms the position of women in Turkish society. It has a whole series of, of fast-paced, rapid social and political economic developments that are kind of state-led. It's, 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 you know, just as the Bolsheviks are doing a similar thing in the North, in the Soviet Union, Ataturk is an early proponent of the developmental state, that it is the state's job to do this kind of rapid development. In fact, he's doing a kind of Leninism without communism. Yeah, you it's, know. yeah it's kind of the new yeah. economic policy with proper economics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, of course, it's an authoritarian system. It's a single party system for a good part of the, the, the early history of the, of the Turkish Republic, led by a single political figure who is the unquestioned authority. You know, the other interesting element of this transformation is even the, the term Ataturk itself, because up to that stage, most Turks, especially out in the, the hinterlands in, in Anatolia, didn't have inheritable surnames, which is very common. I mean, lots of countries around the world don't have inheritable surnames, or there are ones that sort of change. I mean, look at Iceland, you know, today. Daughter, where you're daughter and son. Changed. Yeah, that's exactly where your surname can, can change depending on your gender or other, other features. And Ataturk declares in the middle of the 1930s that all Turks, for administrative purposes, you know, for inheritance law and, and just for the state to keep track of you, will now have to choose surnames. And so his, um, I mean, if, you know, you think, you, think, you think about this for a moment. For me and all of my descendants, I am now going to make a choice that is pretty consequential, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to be- I, Decide what we're all going to be called for all time in the future. And so he takes this term, Ataturk, father of the Turks. That, now, that's excellent marketing. When you, that's when very you, good marketing. You know. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. You'd pay a lot of but money also, in Madison Avenue for that. Yeah, that's right. But it's also why many Turks today, you know, if you were to translate these surnames, they have these magnificent, magnificent surnames, things like Thunderbolt and Iron Hang. <laughs> I and, love it. They're, they're ter- it's terrific, like terrific family names because some ancestor, not that long ago, in the 1930s, I, I love that it. I'm going to be Iron Hand. From uh, who, who doesn't want to be Iron Hand? I mean, who doesn't want to channel, channel their inner Stalin somewhere along the line? Man of steel. Oh, that's right. Now, just let, let's go right up to today. You know, the middle of the Parapalace, Parapalace is a posh hotel, very classic hotel. Be like the kind of Shelburne of Istanbul for, for Irish listeners. Today, this is a city of maybe 24 million, maybe more. They're not sure, okay, which yeah. is kind of phenomenal. And it is right. a proper, proper megalopolis. Like, it's not just a metropolis. It's a mega, mega city. Yeah. If you were saying, look, go visit that place, what would you kind of, what would you, what would you be looking 
to tell people? Yeah, well, you know, it is a massive, massive space. If it were a country, it would be bigger than about two thirds of the countries in the world. So, you know, it's just one one of the world's great metropolitan cities. If you were visiting at the end of the 19th century, the place you would stay, as you mentioned, was this hotel called the Para Palace Hotel. It was the, the hotel associated with the Orient Express, which was, the, of course, the train that went all the way across Europe and deposited you at Sirkiji's train station in, in Istanbul. And then you and your porter would make, make your way up the heights of Para to the hills overlooking the Golden Horn. And you would come into this magnificent hotel that had only the second elevator in in all of Europe that had hot and cold uh, running water that had a radiator system. It was a posh, magnificent place. And when I sat down to write my my book about Turkey and about Istanbul called Midnight at the Para Palace, what I wanted to do was to try to give a sense of that era from the late 19th century up through the occupation of the of the city by the by the Western Allies, and then what was happening in these transformative years of the 1920s and 30s and 40s as modern Turkey was developing? It was, you know, a period not only of social and economic transformation, as we were discussing, but of of cultural change. You know, this was the the first great Islamic jazz age, where people are you know figuring out how to do music and dance and and recording. You know, you have these magnificent. HMV recordings of, of Istanbul artists from that that period that are just you know, tremendous. It was a city teeming with life. And you can still go today and stay at the Para Palace Hotel, which has been really magnificently re, re-outfitted um, in the last 20 years, and get a sense of what that section of Istanbul, the old European section of Istanbul, might have been like in that, in, in that era. And I, and I see, Charles, just up to today, that the mayor of Istanbul is the first significant threat to the present president, Erdogan. Right. And it's so, obviously what, what happens in Istanbul. He who takes Istanbul takes Turkey, is that it? Well, in, 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 in a way, I mean, Turkey is a multifaceted place. You know, you have a rather conservative countryside. You have a, a highly cosmopolitan set of cities, whether it's Izmir on the coast or Ankara itself in the center of the, of the country, or of course, Istanbul, which which uh, towers above them all. You know, one of, one of Ataturk's ideas was to not put the capital in Istanbul because he was trying to Turkify, if you like. Yeah. Um, and also the, shift the geography really of power, which, I presume. Right. I mean, make, make, make the capital be at the center of what the borders of the new state. Yeah. By the uh, way, were, there were suggestions of making Athlone the capital of Ireland, but that's another one. We'll come back to that <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> right. You know, so um, you, you're, you're absolutely right, though, that, you know, Turkey is today a as politically complicated as any other country. But if you're governing a place like Istanbul, you've got, you've got a lot on your plate because you're governing an entire country, even though it's a city. Listen, we leave it there. It's an extraordinary place. Charles, listen, thank you as always, as always. And the book is Midnight at the Para Palace. You know, again, it's this, this is, this is this, well, this is me. This is the stuff of my dreams, is, is reading that sort of stuff and sitting in places like this and taking it all in. But, uh, but great stuff, Charles. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Enjoy the city. Erdogan is, I mean, Charles has gone on there about Ataturk, who is a fascinating character. Really fascinating character. But his whole thing was a secular society. Yeah. And, building- and a modern society. Yes. And, and, and a society that looked forward 
And but Erdogan seems to be looking backwards now and he seems to be kind of getting rid of the secularism. I know that he's he's been building hundreds of mosques oh, around the, the country. The, I was in a restaurant last night on the European side of the Bosphorus. Right. A really nice view. Yeah. And if you look out to the Asian side, right, on the European side, there's the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque. Right? Yes, the old well, town. The really, really old town. And they're mm. beautiful. Right? Erdogan has built a massive, massive mosque. Like, it's huge on the Asian side. It's all you can see on the skyline. Oh, really? It's a huge one. But again, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, Tur- it's a, it's a Muslim country. Oh, sure, uh, sure, sure, yeah. But definitely what you're seeing is a rolling back of all of Ataturk's secular instincts, you know, in terms of women's rights, all sorts of things. But Turkey is a democracy and they have an election next year. Mm. So, you know... Well, there, there was the, the attempted coup there a couple by of... By the Gulenists, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're almost like Freemasons within the whole system. <laughs> Freemasons. Yeah, they're like, imagine that that's what they're like. Like, they're, they're like a sort of a a movement that amazingly deposited their members in the judiciary, in the army, in journalism, in university. So it was like a parallel structure. It was a Muslim fundamentalist parallel structure that actually created almost a parallel power structure within Turkey. Yes. And the guy Gulen, guy who lives yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess many of his followers are in Turkey. I have no idea. I have no idea, but I presume... Well, they're all in jail now anyway. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But a fascinating place. But another interesting thing on economics, right, John, is the inflation rate there, 50, 60%, Mm. but unofficially, it's about 150. So, for example, if you go to rent a car for three months, right? Yeah. The rate of inflation, the prices there, which is probably much more accurate, is probably running about 150%. Wow. Right now, how can you live like that's that? That's what I want to talk. I'm going to t- we're going to talk to a friend of mine because he's been doing business in Turkey for years. He's a business guy, right? Yeah. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out how they survive because the place is thriving. The economy is growing hand over fist. It's been growing for ages. As you said, all these mosque building, the infrastructure is phenomenal there. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. so it's been growing. How does an economy grow? How do you deal with rates of inflation like this? So let's go and talk to somebody who lives that. And I'm joined here by Okai Edrigi, who has been working for many, many years in multinationals here in Turkey, companies doing business here with big, big foreign companies, big local companies. I want to ask him, Okai, how do you function in inflation? Explain this to me. Yeah. First, I need to give you a little bit of a background. Cool. Uh, so... I started elementary school in 1973. Okay. And on the first grade, I was getting from my mom an allowance of 25 kurush, which is lira cents. Okay. Yeah. And I was able to buy a bagel with that money. Okay. On second grade, I was getting 50 kurush from my mom. And that would get me one bagel. Yeah. Then I started secondary school four years later, and a panini sandwich would cost me five liras, which is... 500 krush. Yes. So 100 times, okay. 10 times more expensive in only four years. Yeah. Then I started high school to a boarding school. My weekly allowance was three million liras. Three million, million liras. And when I started to work in 1990... The exchange rate was already $3 million to dollars. 
and uh, my <laughs> how does the place so so this is what I have grown up with yes. and something I got used to yeah throughout the 15 20 years of my education and then also all of the 90s we had inflation either in double digits between 50 and 100 percent or some years like in 2001 it was triple digit so this is a part of our lives so you get used to it and it becomes a part of your expectation in life that prices are going to go up so if you grow up in it you don't question anymore why this is happening to me but you try to find ways to survive in it that's what i want to say but but also the turkish economy has grown exponentially in this period yes i mean it really really has you can really feel it so explain to me how you survive because because you know european listeners and american listeners having just heard what you said will think how did they save how do they put money aside how do they invest how does the whole thing work yeah I'll come back to savings, but you don't, basically. You don't okay. Right, right. Okay. But, okay. but let's say you're, you're in business, you're manufacturing goods, or you're in service industry, or you're the middleman. Yeah. There are different dynamics to all these three. So if you're manufacturing goods, you're actually not in a bad place. Because if you plan your stock, your raw material purchases carefully, yeah. and then you adjust your pricing, your, your, your actual final price in a proactive way and do a proper replacement costing. Explain that to me now. So you, you can't price against the current costs. You always have to project okay. the future cost okay. of your raw materials and everything else and price accordingly. That's why you have to be always a step ahead of inflation. While you're pricing though, you need to look at two things. One, the market average, because mm-hmm. you can price yourself out of the market. By pricing and, yourself yeah, too much. And then if you're a premium supermarket, the low cost supermarkets are gonna eat your lunch. Yeah. yeah. And you also have to always look at your price index versus your key competitors. Because in an inflationary environment, your consumers are going to be extremely, extremely price sensitive. So basically what you're saying is that there is a layer of complexity which is introduced by inflation. If you go from our level of inflation, which is more or less zero, it was up until two months ago, to your 100%, you're screwed because mentally you can't make yeah. this adjustment. Explain to me, to what end, why is the Turkish Central Bank constantly inflating the currency away? Do you know what the strategy is? Well, that's a charged question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if all that is intentional because some of it is beyond our control because we always have a huge deficit and we have to continue to borrow money. From the outside? Yeah, to grow. Yeah. And until recently, actually, Turkish Central Bank did a very, very good job, uh, yes, especially did. in the from the early 2000s to control the inflation, to stabilize the currency and yet still growing the economy. Only recently with the pandemic and uh, also many dynamics impacting the macros in, in Turkey. They decided to go with a policy that is not approved by the experts or the international markets. So that obviously created a huge, huge pressure on our currency. And then it's 
gone up the roof. But 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 let me come back to yeah, two I, things. Yeah, I, I like, because I like I, this idea of the people just adjusting. Because you know, people the, the, the key question you asked was how to survive in an yeah. inflationary environment. So you're manufacturing goods, that's the story. If you're in service industry, you have to, on an almost daily basis, you need to look at your labor cost because that becomes your key, really, yeah. uh, measure uh, to success, to control your overall financials. So that has to be really frequent. And what we always get used to as working class, we would expect our salaries to be adjusted. Yes, in every, all the time. Every three months, every three months. So you get a wage increase every three months? Every three months. Plus, you your company also changes its pricing every month, sometimes every two weeks. So if you're the middleman, you yeah. can really get rich out of this Explain equation. If you're a middleman, you're buying things yeah, and you're from selling, the manufacturer, and you're, selling you're selling it to the channels. Yeah. If you manage your stock carefully and buy at the right time and sell right after the price increases, that causes an extra margin. It's almost free money for you. Yes. And imagine 100% inflation. So the margin you can play with can be from 10 to 30%. And you could really, if you're smart, do a brilliant job. Obviously, that puts pressure on the manufacturing side because you always have fluctuations of shipments. Yeah, because yeah, 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 people buy against the price increase. They stock as they sell that stock for a while, for like three weeks. You're selling nothing. And then in the final week of the month, the whole month's demand is coming on. But a lot of middlemen made a lot of money and started other so, businesses. So, it's, so it's, it's, it's a trader's mecca. It is a trader's mecca. And exactly. That, and that's why, you know, because Turks have this reputation of being, for centuries, really brilliant traders. Yeah. Sitting in the middle Back to the Silk Roads. Yeah. Sit in the middle. Take it. And you, what you're saying, so this is a trader's mecca. you got to get your head around it. And but what about just lastly, what about people on fixed income, like civil servants yeah. and pensioners and what? Those? I mean, overall, somebody has to pay the bill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah? And unfortunately, they take the lion's share in paying the bill in this. Because when you're a fixed income person, and especially if you're working for the government, your salary increases are always going to be... They've got a lag inflation. Lag inflation. So your purchasing power over time is going to decrease. But on the other hand, as the economy grows, there are more employment opportunities. Per household, income may actually beat inflation. Yeah. It's an extraordinary story. I'm going to leave it there. I mean, it's again, it's <laughs> for, for, you know, Western European audiences like... How get your head around that? But as you said, once you get your head around it, yeah. you know how to play it. One last word on this. Go. Still, the fund- fundamentals of doing business and doing the right thing count in this environment. So while you're very careful analyzing how your cost is evolving, you need to continue to do the right things to grow your business and sometimes not worry too much about what is happening from the external environment that for the things that you cannot you, you can't control. do anything about yeah yeah fair so. enough okay as always this isn't a pleasure and uh you and i are going to just head down to Bishistas. how do you yeah. say it let's do that let's do that okay <laughs> take care brilliant hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So based on Okai's view, Turkey is is actually a brilliant example of of how economies adapt yeah. or people adapt to economic situations and survive. You're absolutely right. You know, this is, you know, at, at, at the root of this podcast is probably a view of economics that always suggests that economics is more evolutionary yeah, yeah, than yeah, yeah. hard science. It's just kind of, it's messy. Yeah. And there's nothing more messy than inflation. Inflation is really messy, right? And what he's saying there is that you get used to it. This is the country you live in. And you figure stuff out. Now, if you were to take us and drop us into Turkey, we'd freak out. But hold on a second, Macker. You know, we, we talk about central banks a lot. Yeah. And central bank strategy and monetary policy and all the rest. What What is Turkey's central bank up to? What's their strategy? Well, I'll tell you what their strategy is, right? Okai was saying that we're used to inflation. Yeah. Now, that means that people's heads have adapted to get Wage increases every three months, as he was saying. They expect prices to go up every week, right? Yeah, it's bonkers. If you do what Europeans would do then, what you would do was you'd say, we get, let's get rid of inflation. Yeah. What that, the first thing you'd have to do is you'd have to put real interest rates, okay, real, up to around 60 or 70% per year. Right. So suddenly you would precipitate a massive recession straight away, yeah. okay? And the interesting thing is deflation, which is a situation where prices are falling, can be more catastrophic than inflation, right? Because people seem, as Okai said, they get used to inflation. Yeah. So the choices for the Turkish Central Bank would be the following. You put real interest rates up to make sure that nominal interest rates are around 70%. That would have real interest rates at about 20%. That would do right. two things. It would drive the Turkish lira up dramatically. Yeah. So therefore, all import prices would fall dramatically. But it would also cause almost every business that has debts in Turkey to go bust, right? Right. Because they suddenly, suddenly your real and interest rates would be incredibly their biggest, high. Their biggest company, their biggest industry? They have loads of industries. Loads of Beko. Of, what's Beko? Beko are the, you know, look at any house. You have Beko fridges, freezers, washing machines, appliances, essentially. They make appliances. Yeah, yeah, and they sponsor uh, Barcelona. But anyway. Do they sponsor Barcelona? Yeah. Stuff Beko. Beko. 
Right, they're fridges. I'm telling you, these are th- th- things. <laughs> it's How Turkey's do you know big, these things? It's Turkey's biggest company. Okay, well then, so take so take that big manufacturing company. The last thing they want mm. is for the inflation to turn around. Because what they have is they figured out, as Okai was saying, how to sell forward. They're selling in dollars. Once you're actually getting dollars coming in or euros, you're sitting really pretty. If you card currency in this situation, you're flying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So exporting companies in Turkey will do extremely well. And then you just think that maybe what they're doing is they're saying the cost of disinflation is so high to us that we will continue. And as Okai said, like when he was a kid, he was buying a bagel for, you know, such and such. Yeah, and yeah. then three years later, it was a million lira. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a bit like what Martin says about Argentina. Yes. Martin yeah. was saying in Argentina, he was saying that the day he graduated, he had a, he, all his mates would have for pizzas and beer. Like just pizzas and beer. Yeah. And they sat down and there was one price and they got up to pay and it was another price. And <laughs> <laughs> you just get used to it. <laughs> but what it does is it destroys the savings culture. And any sort of planning. Then. And any sort of planning. Yeah. Unless you can anchor it in something else like hard currency, unless you're dollarizing prices in your head all the time. But the amazing thing is, the extraordinary thing, is that these economies don't just amble along. Mm. They don't stagnate, as stagflation would suggest. They actually go in gangbusters. And it's just that everybody in their head has one little compartment called the inflation compartment. (laughs) And in that compartment, they're calculating all the time. You know, right. It's a bit of a head wreck. Well, it's maybe it's something that we should uh, all learn ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> the way things are going. I'll talk to you next week, Sunshine. Good luck. <laughs> Listen, if ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, we're delighted to announce that we've a new subscription service on Apple. Ad-free, two clicks, you're away. And it's all for the price of a pint, Mark. I know. Check it out on the Dave McWilliams podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 